We're going to be reading from Revelations chapter 4. I think it's page 872 in the church Bibles that you've got in front of you. And the passage is entitled, The Throne in Heaven. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it, and the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white, and they had gold crowns of gold in their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center... Around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in the back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, They never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, 
which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power for ever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. In heaven they sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and to be priests serving our God and they will reign on earth. But thank you so much for the invitation to be with you and to share something from these chapters of the book of Revelation. Now, as a general rule, there are certain information, sorry, invitations that I'm very careful about accepting. I've thought twice in the past when I've been asked to speak about the opening chapters of Genesis. Fear that I might upset a six-day creationist or perhaps encourage one. I'm always careful with those chapters because you never know who you're going to upset when you speak from them. And then there are the invitations to speak about divorce or about human sexuality. And on those occasions, I always check the exits. And then there are the invitations to speak about the book of Revelation. And on those occasions, I usually manage to upset just about everybody. So uh, here goes. John calls his book a revelation or an apocalypse. And the underlying Greek word means unveiling. It's the moment when you draw back the curtain 
and see what's really happening. In Galatians, it's one of the words that the Apostle Paul uses to describe his encounter with Jesus. An apocalypse is the moment when you realize what's really going on. I don't know whether you ever saw the film The Usual Suspects, but the, the, the main character walks away at the end with his characteristic limp. And then as he goes, slowly, he stops limping. And then you realize what's been hidden in plain sight. It's the moment of unveiling and you go, that's what was going on. In the old days, when you went to the seaside, you could see a puppet show called Punch and Judy. Does anybody else remember ever seeing a Punch and Judy show? Far too violent for these days. But as a child, I, I, I sat entranced as the characters argued and fought. But suppose someone had come along and taken away that little tent that everything happened in. You remember? There was a little tent and there was a, a window that you could see through. You see... Imagine the tent gets taken away and all you can see is somebody crouching there with glove puppets on their hands. The spell would be broken and the reality that lies behind the world that you're actually engaged in is revealed. Now you understand what's really going on. That's the moment of unveiling. And so it is with the book of Revelation. It, it tears away the veil so that you see the spiritual realities that are there all the time, but below the surface. And once you've seen, the world can never be the same again for you. And that's what's going on in this book. Now, I think there are a few things to bear in mind that I find helpful, and you might too. First of all, the book of Revelation is written for a church or churches that are experiencing or expecting a time of persecution. They know it's going to be a struggle. There's one martyr mentioned by name, but lots of references to martyrs in general. And so the main purpose of the book seems to be to encourage the people of God to stay faithful. Whatever the world is going to throw at them, or indeed whatever they're going to be thrown to, they need to stay faithful. And it, it encourages them to do this by telling them what's really going on, exposing the spiritual forces that lie behind their day-to-day -day experience and offering them hope so that they have reason to stay faithful to God through Jesus Christ. Now, the next thing to understand is that that Revelation often tells us stuff that we already know, but instead of using stories about Jesus, like we get in the Gospels, or instead of using the form of letters, we get word pictures, we get images, and we have to use our imagination. It's like being told something in poetry instead of in prose. And it brings new depths and fresh levels of understanding that you feel with your gut as well as with your mind. you see what I'm getting at? So these pictures in Revelation often tell us stuff we already know, but we know the prose version. Now we're getting the poem. Now we're getting the picture. Now we're getting something which engages our heart and our imagination. 
So we shouldn't be necessarily just looking for things which are brand new. We should be looking for things which tell us about uh, the Son of God coming to earth, about his dying on the cross, about his rising again, his ascending into heaven, uh, his coming again in glory, his creation of the new heavens and the new earth. We should be looking for the renewal of Eden, not because we're going to go back there, but because we're going to go to what Eden would have become if humans had stayed faithful instead of being rebellious. You know those books, you read them and you think, okay, I get the conclusion, it's telling me something that I already knew, but it's told me in language I don't understand. Well, Revelation is telling you things you know, and the pictures are a fresh way of seeing them. Sometimes we struggle to understand them because it's not what we're used to. Now, John talks about his brothers, the prophets. And almost certainly, this was a group of people that John shared his vision with. And almost certainly, uh, he taught them what the visions meant. And then, with copies of the text, he would send them off around the churches, and they would read bits out, and then they'd interpret that for the congregation. The brothers were the group that explained the text. And so all this emerges from... Uh, the Jewish version of Christianity in the uh, first century. And uh, now, this means that it's seeped in the Old Testament. Now, there are very few direct quotations from the Old Testament, but there are lots of references to Exodus and the Psalms and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah. The Hebrew scriptures are the water in which the writer swims. They're the air that he breathes and so a knowledge of the Old Testament really helps us to see what's going on. And then the other thing which tells us that this is a Jewish form of Christianity is it, the interest that the text has in the temple. Now, bear with me on this. There's an idea in the Jewish world at this time that God dwells in heaven and the place that he dwells in is, is a temple that God dwells in a heavenly temple uh, beyond the sky. And the temple in Jerusalem is understood as a kind of working model of the true temple in heaven where God dwells. It's, the one is a picture of the other. And most of the book is written as though John has been taken up into that heavenly temple. And the thing to remember about the temple, or one of them, is that time works differently there. God looks out from the temple, and he sees time and space as one. He sees all of time and all of space. And so, for God, things are connected by their spiritual meanings. He doesn't see things necessarily historically or chronologically, because he sees everything at once. I like to watch Doctor Who. You ever see that? When I was little... The budget was low, the sets were terrible, it was in black and white, and I was terrified. I'd hide behind the sofa and watch through my fingers as the Cybermen or the Daleks or something. These days, the budget is much bigger, the sets are wonderful, but it's not nearly as scary. But the idea is that 
Doctor Who travels in a machine called the TARDIS, yeah? And when the TARDIS goes wrong, you never know where you could end up. And in theory, you could open the door of the TARDIS and see anywhere in time and anywhere in space, couldn't you? And that's like the temple, except the temple, you open the door, you see everything everywhere all at once. It's that sort of idea. And the other thing to bear in mind is the layout of the temple in heaven is a bit like the layout of the one on earth. There's a, there's a holy place where only the priests can go and where most of the rituals happen. And then beyond that, there's a door or a curtain and there's the holy of holies, the dwelling place of God. Now, John starts off on Patmos. But very quickly, he's caught up in a vision into a place where there are seven golden lampstands. Now, you know that in the holy place in the temple, there was the menorah, which was a seven-pronged candlestick. So John has almost certainly been summoned into the holy place in heaven. And so you would expect then that the next thing that might happen if he was on a journey towards God would be that he'd be invited out of the holy place into the holy of holies itself where he would see God on his throne. Well, you have to wait for a bit because first of all, you've got to have chapters two and three in the dictation of the letters of the seven churches. But then, then the same voice that summoned him in chapter one summons him again and says, come up here. You have to see what's going to happen after this or beyond this. And he goes through a door in heaven and he sees the throne of God. He's entered the heavenly holy of holies. Oh, but there's another surprise in store. Because you think this is a Christian text. So when you enter the heavenly holy of holies, there are certain things that you would expect to see. For a start, you'd expect to see Jesus, wouldn't you? You'd expect maybe to see some apostles. But he doesn't. All he sees are things drawn from the Old Testament. So this seems very odd. And among them are these 24 elders who all for some reason have thrones. And you think, now where do I know the number 24 from? Especially 24 as it relates to the temple. And you remember in the book of Chronicles, of course you do, that there were 24 courses of priests, each of which had a leader. And these are their heavenly representatives. And they're all gathered around the throne. And they've got crowns and they've got thrones of their own because they have a huge responsibility. Because under the old covenant, they are responsible for making atonement. They are the people who break down the barrier between God and his people. They're really significant. But those verses in 9 and 10, which are in present continuous in most of our translations, are future in the Greek. You've got this idea that, in fact, these, the responsibility of these elders isn't going to last forever. At some point, they're going to have to hand over their responsibility to something else or somebody else. They're going to take their crowns off, and they're going to throw them. They're not going to throw their crowns down, run and get them, put them back on again continually. There's a moment when they will cast off their crowns and hand over their responsibility. So in chapter 5, it becomes clear that in chapter 4, we've seen heaven 
on tiptoe, waiting for something new to happen, waiting for God to act. And so when we move to chapter 5, we see this scroll waiting to be open. It's as though the whole of heaven is waiting for the promises of God to be put into effect, for the thing to happen which is going to allow God to keep all his ancient promises to his people. Well, if that's what heaven's waiting for, and they all think it's going to happen, and John sees the scroll, and he's thinking, yes, I'm going to see the moment when God's promises are all fulfilled, and then no one can open the scroll, you'd be upset, wouldn't you? That's why he cries. Because he's been led to think that this astonishing moment is going to happen, and it can't. But thank goodness, one of the elders takes him to one side, taps him on the shoulder, and says, look. He doesn't say look. He tells him about... The lion. Now in Revelation, the language of hearing is often the language of Old Testament expectation. It's what we've been told, what we've believed is going to happen. The the root of David, the, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, is going to act to save God's people. But when he looks, this is the language of New Testament fulfillment, he sees the lamb who's been slain. He sees Jesus Christ, all his wounds, standing in the midst of the throne in heaven. He sees the elders who had been responsible for atonement fall down and worship. He realizes that now he's seeing Jesus arrive in heaven, having carried out his great sacrifice. So that atonement now belongs to him. The fulfillment of God's promises belongs to him. And that the the Old Testament covenant, beautiful as it was, has been surpassed by what God has done now. And it's celebrated in heaven. And look, what were those old promises? That through Abraham, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That, That God would act to forgive people's sins completely. And what do we read? That people from every tribe and every nation had been ransomed by this lamb. We're seeing the fulfillment of all God's great promises happen. We see it from heaven's perspective. It's as though we're seeing the moment of ascension. But instead of seeing it from the perspective of earth, like we do at the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, for example, where we find ourselves standing with the the disciples, watching as Jesus goes up into the clouds and into heaven, now we're standing in heaven to see what happens there when Jesus arrives. And his victory is celebrated. This is the moment that changes the course of world history. And in one sense, God has done everything that God ever needs to do to keep his promises. And so by the end of the chapter, all of heaven and all of earth, the whole creation joins as one in celebrating God. Now that can only be the end. So how can we reach the end, at the end of chapter 5, and there's still another, I don't know, my math isn't good, but there's 17 more chapters to go. What you've got, I think, is a kind of telescoping. If you can imagine a telescope where it's like that, and then you pull out another bit, and then another bit, you see the whole story told in chapter 5 from heaven's perspective, and then 
You've got to pull out the next bit and see the story told again from another perspective, and then again and again. And that's the way the book of Revelation works. It goes from the death of Jesus to the fulfillment of all things again and again and again. Which is why you keep thinking it's over, and there can't be any more to tell, and yet it goes on. And that's why. It's like Paul going, and finally, brothers and sisters. So what might all this mean to us? Well, first thing. God has already carried out the decisive act to change history. Nothing can undo what God has done. So we can have faith that whatever is going on for us, God has acted. God has been faithful to his promises and will be. However things may seem, you have seen the unveiling and know what's really going on. And what's really going on is that uh, the ascended Jesus is in heaven and he holds you and his churches, we're told, or the heavenly aspect of his churches, their angels, safely in his hands. We learn that in chapter 1. So however things seem, God has acted decisively already. You are safe, whatever happens. And therefore, we should be steadfast. Next, we learn that God is the great promise keeper. In order to keep his promises that the whole world would have the opportunity to be part of his people, God gave up even his own son to death. He did it to be faithful, to be true to what he said. If God's prepared to do that, to be a promise keeper, then you know that he can be relied upon. Christmas is coming. It will get, it's not Narnia where it's always winter and never Christmas. Christmas comes. It'll be here before you know it. And God will deliver on all the rest of his promises. You can bank on it. And in response to God's great promise keeping, we need to commit ourselves to be promise keepers ourselves. You you may have made vows at your baptism. You may have made vows when you became a church member. You made vows when you said you were going to follow Jesus. God's own promise keeping inspires us to be promise keepers in return. Next We learn from Revelation and from these chapters not to trust in only that which can be seen. Actually, we do this all the time. We can't see the love of our parents or the love of our children or the love of our husbands, the love of our wives. But we know these things are real and we live our lives counting on the fact that they're real. You can't see them or measure them, but we can't imagine our lives without the love of the people who are close to us. It's the same with the faithfulness of God. We can trust it more than anything else in all the universe. It's like the promise that the sun will rise or that the summer will come. The steadfast love of the Lord, we're told, never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're fresh every morning. And then we learn that the church in every age faces opposition. It varies between different times and different places. We do not face the Roman emperor and his hordes. We do not face what Mackey faced when he was growing up in the communist regimes of Eastern Europe that opposed the church. We, we don't face what people face in North Africa that we were praying for earlier, where there are political regimes which are ill-disposed towards Christianity. But we do face things which want to undermine the church from outside, and sometimes 
I'm afraid from within. And what we learn from Revelation is that the spiritual realities that we face might be the same in every age, even if their historical manifestations are different. The church is always engaged in a spiritual struggle. And Revelation gives us resources to face that in our own time, whatever the nature of the opposition is that we may face. And then finally, we learn from this that nothing can save except Jesus. The great, the beautiful, the elaborate worship pattern of the temple was a wonderful thing. But its heavenly representatives fall down and worship the Lamb. That's Jesus. They recognize that they cannot compete. And nothing, if nothing else can compete in heaven, do you think anything else on earth will ever compete? Only Jesus saves. Only Jesus brings atonement. Only Jesus brings us back to God the Father. Jesus' action in giving himself up to death in obedience is the perfect sacrifice. He carries the sins of all the world. He carries yours. All those things that shame you, all those things that you do wrong, all those things that you think cut you off from God, all those things that make you feel that you'll never be good enough, he's carried those for you. He's buried those for you. They cannot be found. No one's going to be able to dig those up again once you put your trust in Jesus. Only have faith in him and those wrongdoings are, are blasted into outer space, burned up in the heat of the sun. They're untraceable. If you belong to Jesus, then God has acted and you are safe forever. God keeps his promises. His love is more real than anything else in creation. He gives you the resources to the struggle and he reminds you that he loves you, he forgives you, and he accepts you, and he calls you to be steadfast. And these, I think, are the things we might learn from Revelation 4 and 5. May God bless you.